Section 9 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Section 9. Theodore Roosevelt. December 7, 1903. Part 3. I recommend that an appropriation be made for building lighthouses in Hawaii and taking possession of those already built. The territory should be reimbursed for whatever amounts it has already expended for lighthouses. The governor should be empowered to suspend or remove any official appointed by him without submitting the matter to the legislature. Of our insular possessions, the Philippines and Puerto Rico... It is gratifying to say that their steady progress has been such as to make it unnecessary to spend much time in discussing them. Yet the Congress should ever keep in mind that a peculiar obligation rests upon us to further in every way the welfare of these communities. The Philippines should be knit closer to us by tariff agreements. It would, of course, be impossible suddenly to raise the people of the islands to the high pitch of industrial prosperity and of governmental efficiency to which they will in the end by degrees attain. And the caution and moderation shown in developing them have been among the main reasons why this development has hitherto gone on so smoothly. Scrupulous care has been taken in the choice of governmental agents and the entire elimination of partisan politics from the public service. The condition of the islanders is in material things far better than ever before while their governmental, intellectual, and moral advances kept pace with their material advance. No one people ever benefited another people more than we have benefited the Filipinos by taking possession of the islands. The cash receipts of the General Land Office for the last fiscal year were $11,024,743.65 an increase of $4,762,816.47 over the preceding year. Of this sum, approximately $8,461,493 will go to the credit of the Fund for the Reclamation of Arid Land, making the total of this fund, up to the 30th of June, 1903, approximately $16,191,836. A gratifying disposition has been evinced by those having unlawful enclosures of public land to remove their fences. Nearly two million acres so enclosed have been thrown open on demand. In but comparatively few cases has it been necessary to go into court to accomplish this purpose. This work will be vigorously prosecuted until all unlawful enclosures have been removed. Experience has shown that in the western states themselves, as well as in the rest of the country, There is widespread conviction that certain of the public land laws and the resulting administrative practice no longer meet the present needs. The character and uses of the remaining public lands differ widely from those of the public lands which Congress had especially in view when these laws were passed. The rapidly increasing rate of disposal of the public lands is not followed by a corresponding increase in home building. There is a tendency to mass in large holdings public lands, especially timber and grazing lands, and thereby to retard settlement. I renew and emphasize my recommendation of last year that so far as they are available for agriculture in its broadest sense, and to whatever extent they may be reclaimed under the National Irrigation Law, 
the remaining public lands should be held rigidly for the home builder. The attention of the Congress is especially directed to the timber and stone law, the desert land law, and the commutation clause of the homestead law, which in their operation have in many respects conflicted with wise public land policy. The discussions in the Congress and elsewhere have made it evident that there is a wide divergence of opinions between those holding opposite views on these subjects, and that the opposing sides have strong and convinced representatives of weight both within and without the Congress, the differences being not only as to matters of opinion, but as to matters of fact. In order that definite information may be available for the use of the Congress, I have appointed a commission composed of W.A. Richards, Commissioner of the General Land Office, Gifford Pinchot, Chief of the Bureau of Forestry of the Department of Agriculture, and F.H. Newell, Chief Hydrographer of the Geological Survey, to report at the earliest practicable moment upon the condition, operation, and effect of the present land laws and on the use, condition, disposal, and settlement of the public lands. The Commission will report especially what changes in organization, laws, regulations, and practice affecting the public lands are needed to affect the largest practicable disposition of the public lands to actual settlers who will build permanent homes upon them, and to secure in permanence the fullest and most effective use of the resources of the public lands. And it will make such other reports and recommendations as its study of these questions may suggest. The Commission is to report immediately upon those points concerning which its judgment is clear. On any point upon which it has doubt, it will take the time necessary to make investigation and reach a final judgment. The work of reclamation of the arid lands of the West is progressing steadily and satisfactorily under the terms of the law setting aside the proceeds from the disposal of public lands. The Corps of Engineers, known as the Reclamation Service, which is conducting the surveys and examinations, has been thoroughly organized a special pains being taken to secure under the civil service rules a body of skilled, experienced, and efficient men. Surveys and examinations are progressing throughout the arid states and territories. Plans for reclaiming works being prepared and passed upon by boards of engineers before approval by the Secretary of the Interior. In Arizona and Nevada, in localities where such work is preeminently needed, construction has already been begun. In other parts of the arid west, various projects are well advanced towards the drawing up of contracts, these being delayed in part by necessities of reaching agreements or understanding as regards rights of way or acquisition of real estate. Most of the works contemplated for construction are of national importance, involving interstate questions or the securing of stable, self-supporting communities in the midst of vast tracts of vacant land. The nation as a whole is of course the gainer by the creation of these homes, adding as they do to the wealth and stability of the country, and furnishing a home market for the products of the East and South. The reclamation law, while perhaps not ideal, appears at present to answer the larger needs for which it is designed. Further legislation is not recommended until the necessities of change are more apparent. The study of the opportunities of reclamation of the vast extent of arid land shows that whether this reclamation is done by individuals, corporations, or the state, the sources of water supply must be effectively protected and the reservoirs guarded by the preservation of the forests at the headwaters of the streams. The engineers making the preliminary examinations continually emphasize this need 
and urged that the remaining public lands at the headwaters of the important streams of the west be reserved to ensure permanency of water supply for irrigation. Much progress in forestry has been made during the past year. The necessity for perpetuating our forest resources, whether in public or private hands, is recognized now as never before. The demand for forest reserves has become insistent in the West, because the West must use the water, wood, and summer range which only such reserves can supply. Progressive lumbermen are striving, through forestry, to give their business permanence. Other great business interests are awakening to the need of forest preservation as a business matter. The government's forest work should receive from the Congress hearty support, and especially support adequate for the protection of the forest reserves against fire. The forest reserve policy of the government has passed beyond the experimental stage and has reached a condition where scientific methods are essential to its successful prosecution. The administrative features of forest reserves are at present unsatisfactory, being divided between three bureaus of two departments. It is therefore recommended that all matters pertaining to forest reserves, except those involving or pertaining to land titles, be consolidated in the Bureau of Forestry of the Department of Agriculture. The cotton-growing states have recently been invaded by a weevil that has done much damage and threatens the entire cotton industry. I suggest to the Congress the prompt enactment of such remedial legislation as its judgment may approve. In granting patents to foreigners, the proper course for this country to follow is to give the same advantages to foreigners here that the countries in which these foreigners dwell extend in return to our citizens. That is, to extend the benefits of our patent laws on inventions and the like, where in return the articles would be patentable in the foreign countries concerned, where an American could get a corresponding patent in such countries. The Indian agents should not be dependent for their appointment or tenure of office upon considerations of partisan politics. The practice of appointing, when possible, ex-army officers or bonded superintendents to the vacancies that occur is working well. Attention is invited to the widespread illiteracy due to lack of public schools in the Indian Territory. Prompt heed should be paid to the need of education for the children in this territory. In my last annual message, the attention of the Congress was called to the necessity of enlarging the safety appliance law, and it is gratifying to note that this law was amended in important respects. With the increasing railway mileage of the country, the greater number of men employed, and the use of larger and heavier equipment, the urgency for renewed effort to prevent the loss of life and limb upon the railroads of the country, particularly to employees, is apparent. For the inspection of watercraft and the life-saving service upon the water, the Congress has built up an elaborate body of protective legislation and a thorough method of inspection, and is annually spending large sums of money. It is encouraging to observe that the Congress is alive to the interests of those who are employed upon our wonderful arteries of commerce, the railroads, who so safely transport millions of passengers and billions of tons of freight. The Federal Inspection of Safety Appliances, for which the Congress is now making appropriations, is a service analogous to that which the government has upheld for generations in regard to vessels, and it is believed will prove of great practical benefit, both to railroad employees and the traveling public. As the greater part of commerce is interstate and exclusively under the control of the Congress, the needed safety and uniformity must be secured by national legislation. 
No other class of our citizens deserves so well of the nation as those to whom the nation owes its very being, the veterans of the Civil War. Special attention is asked to the excellent work of the Pension Bureau in expediting and disposing of pension claims. During the fiscal year ending July 1, 1903, the Bureau settled 251,982 claims, an average of 825 claims for each working day of the year. The number of settlements since July 1, 1903 has been in excess of last year's average, approaching 1,000 claims for each working day, and it is believed that the work of the Bureau will be current at the close of the present fiscal year. During the year ended June 30th last, 25,566 persons were appointed through competitive examinations under the civil service rules. This was 12,672 more than during the preceding year, and 40% of those who passed examinations. This abnormal growth was largely occasioned by the extension of classification to the Rural Free Delivery Service and the appointment last year of over 9,000 rural carriers. A revision of the civil service rules took effect on April 15 last, which has greatly improved their operation. The completion of the reform of the civil service is recognized by good citizens everywhere as a matter of the highest public importance, and the success of the merit system largely depends upon the effectiveness of the rules and the machinery provided for their enforcement. A very gratifying spirit of friendly cooperation exists in all the departments of the government in the enforcement and uniform observance of both the letter and spirit of the Civil Service Act. Executive Orders of July 3, 1902, March 26, 1903, and July 8, 1903 require that appointments of all unclassified laborers, both in the departments at Washington and in the field service, shall be made with the assistance of the United States Civil Service Commission, under a system of registration to test the relative fitness of applicants for appointment or employment. This system is competitive and is open to all citizens of the United States qualified in respect to age, physical ability, moral character, industry, and adaptability for manual labor, except that in case of veterans of the Civil War, the element of age is omitted. This system of appointment is distinct from the classified service and does not classify positions of mere laborer under the Civil Service Act and rules. Regulations in aid thereof have been put in operation in several of the departments and are being gradually extended in other parts of the service. The results have been very satisfactory, as extravagance has been checked by decreasing the number of unnecessary positions and by increasing the efficiency of the employees remaining. The Congress, as the result of a thorough investigation of the charities and reformatory institutions in the District of Columbia, by a joint select committee of the two houses which made its report in March, 1898, created, in the act approved June 6, 1900, a board of charities for the District of Columbia, to consist of five residents of the district, appointed by the President of the United States, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, each for a term of three years, to serve without compensation. President McKinley appointed five men who had been active and prominent in the public charities in Washington, all of whom, upon taking office July 1, 1900, resigned from the different charities with which they had been connected. The members of the board have been reappointed in successive years. The board serves under the commissioners of the District of Columbia. The board gave its first year to a careful and impartial study of the special problems before it, and has continued that study every year in the light of the best practice in public charities elsewhere. 
Its recommendations in its annual reports to the Congress through the Commissioners of the District of Columbia for the economical and efficient administration of the charities and reformatories of the District of Columbia, as required by the Act creating it, have been based upon the principles commended by the Joint Select Committee of the Congress in its report of March 1898, and approved by the best administrators of public charities, and make for the desired systematization and improvement of the affairs under its supervision. They are worthy of favorable consideration by the Congress. The effect of the laws providing a general staff for the Army and for the more effective use of the National Guard has been excellent. Great improvement has been made in the efficiency of our Army in recent years. Such schools as those erected at Fort Leavenworth and Fort Riley and the Institution of Fall Maneuver Work accomplish satisfactory results. The good effect of these maneuvers upon the National Guard is marked, and ample appropriation should be made to enable the Guardsmen of the several states to share in the benefit. The government should as soon as possible secure suitable permanent campsites for military maneuvers in the various sections of the country. The service thereby rendered not only to the regular army, but to the National Guard of the several states, will be so great as to repay many times over the relatively small expense. We should not rest satisfied with what has been done, however. The only people who are contented with a system of promotion by mere seniority are those who are contented with the triumph of mediocrity over excellence. On the other hand, a system which encouraged the exercise of social or political favoritism in promotions would be even worse. But it would surely be easy to devise a method of promotion from grade to grade in which the opinion of the higher officers of the service upon the candidates should be decisive upon the standing and promotion of the latter. Just a system now obtains at West Point. The quality of each year's work determines the standing of that year's class. The man being dropped or graduated into the next class in the relative position which his military superiors decide to be warranted by his merit. In other words, ability, energy, fidelity, and all other similar qualities determine the rank of a man year after year in West Point, and his standing in the Army when he graduates from West Point. But from that time on, all effort to find which man is best or worst and reward or punish him accordingly is abandoned. No brilliancy, no amount of hard work, no eagerness in the performance of duty can advance him, and no slackness or indifference that falls short of a court-martial offense can retard him. Until this system is changed, we cannot hope that our officers will be of high grade as we have a right to expect, considering the material upon which we draw. Moreover, when a man renders such service as Captain Pershing rendered last spring in the Morrow campaign, it ought to be possible to reward him without at once jumping him to the grade of Brigadier General. Shortly after the enunciation of that famous principle of American foreign policy now known as the Monroe Doctrine, President Monroe, in a special message to Congress on January 30, 1824, spoke as follows, The Navy is the arm from which our government will always derive most aid in support of our rights. Every power engaged in war will know the strength of our naval power, the number of our ships of each class, their condition, and the promptitude with which we may bring them into service, and will pay due consideration to that argument. I heartily congratulate the Congress upon the steady progress in building up the American Navy. We cannot afford to let up in this great work. To stand still means to go back. There should be no cessation in adding to the effective units of the fighting strength of the fleet. Meanwhile, the Navy Department and the officers of the Navy are doing well their part by providing constant service at sea, 
under conditions akin to those of actual warfare. Our officers and enlisted men are learning to handle the battleships, cruisers, and torpedo boats with high efficiency in fleet and squadron formations, and the standard of marksmanship is being steadily raised. The best work ashore is indispensable, but the highest duty of a naval officer is to exercise command at sea. The establishment of a naval base in the Philippines ought not to be longer postponed. Such a base is desirable in time of peace. In time of war, it would be indispensable, and its lack would be ruinous. Without it, our fleet would be helpless. Our naval experts are agreed that Subic Bay is the proper place for the purpose. The national interests require that the work of fortification and development of a naval station at Subic Bay be begun at an early date, for under the best conditions it is a work which will consume much time. It is eminently desirable, however, that there should be provided a naval general staff on lines similar to those of the general staff lately created for the Army. Within the Naval Department itself, the needs of the service have brought about a system under which the duties of a general staff are partially performed, for the Bureau of Navigation has under its direction the War College, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and the Board of Inspection, and has been in close touch with the General Board of the Navy. But though under the excellent officers at their head, these boards and bureaus do good work, they have not the authority of a general staff and have not sufficient scope to ensure a proper readiness for emergencies. We need the establishment by law of a body of trained officers who shall exercise a systematic control of the military affairs of the Navy and be authorized advisors of the Secretary concerning it. End of Section 9